Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Here in Louisiana, we have more than our fair share of delectable heritage foods. Many of them are harvested from the wild. On this week's show, environmentalist Oliver Huff takes us along the Mississippi River Batcher, that no man's land between the levee and the river. Oliver shares tales of the folks who sustain themselves by hunting rabbits and fishing on the Batcher and reveals his deep love for the dewberries he gathers there. Then we'll hear from Bill Heavey, editor-at-large of Field and Stream magazine. He explains the bizarre lengths he took to eat only wild foraged food for an entire year. Finally, Wild man, Joey Fonseca, takes us into the swamps for some authentic alligator hunting. We're all going into the wild on this week's Louisiana Eats. When Oliver Hawk isn't teaching environmental law at Tulane, he can often be found wandering along the banks of the lower Mississippi on a small strip of land called the Batcher. Nestled in this netherworld between levee and river, a small community sustains itself among the water, sand, mud, and trees. Oliver researched the history of the area and gathered together reflections on his experiences there for his classic 2010 book, Down on the Batcher. A few years after its publication, Oliver explained to us what life is like on this vibrant slip of wilderness on the river's edge. The Batcher is the place, as the French say, that the water beats against the land, which is why it's called the Batcher. And it's that nondescript piece of terrain between the top of the levee and wherever the Mississippi River happens to be at the moment. So in the spring, there's virtually no Batcher. The water's right up to the base of the levee. Nobody knows about the Badger because there's so few people up there. It's just this wonderful no-man's land uh, that runs basically from the Corps of Engineers upriver as far as you want to go. It'll go as far as Vicksburg. But this is a place where very extraordinary people go. Folks are fishing for catfish, and they're in there making rafts, and they're doing Tom Sawyer stuff, and it's a marvelous ceremony. You've seen a lot of catfishing going on there, right? Yeah. There is a lot of fishing on the Batcher, and it's a little scary because the Mississippi contamination can be pretty high, and you never know because mm-hmm. there are these what they call excursions from the industries upstream, and you just you don't know what's swirling down. If you took a grab sample of the river on any given day, it might be perfectly good. It would just mm. be sediment-filled, muddy water. But... Boy, those industrial discharges are powerful. If you go right below the big refineries, Exxon, Shell, you're going to have some pretty dramatic bumps. And so that's where people fish. 
Wow. Um, and basically, these are poor people, mm-hmm. often African American, and uh, they're bringing these whoppers out of the water and they're taking them home. I mean, it's like taking home a knapsack. Well, when I read your book, you immediately captivated me with your description of skinning a catfish. Well, it's it's amazing, and I've, I've watched them do it, although mostly they do it at home. They'll take the whole fish home. It's easier. But there is this fellow who fishes right under the power lines by Oshner, and one high-water evening I came down, and he was wrestling a fish out of the water. It was so big that if he tried to pull it out of the water on his hook and line, he would have broken the line or ripped the hook out of its mouth. It was, it was like a buffalo in the water. He slid into the water and he just oozed his way over to the fish and started stroking it and calming it. And within minutes, he had that fish absolutely calm, nuzzling him like a puppy. Wow. And then he slowly slipped his hand in behind the gills of the fish until his hand was literally inside the fish's throat, still soothing the fish. He's about waist deep at that point. Standing in the water, he begins hauling this monster out of the water. And when he finished, he had a very large fish out. There was a log there, and he had a hammer and a nail, and he nailed the fish to the log so that it hung down. And he just slid it down each side and pulled and pulled and pulled. Um, It's the way I imagine young girls must get out of their jeans these days. I have no (laughs) idea how they do it otherwise. But he completely turned that skin inside out, leaving the catfish there. And then he gutted it and took home the meat. Really, Oliver, I have to tell you, I'm still haunted by your description of the unusual rabbit hunting activities you've observed. Yeah. Now, what's up with that? There are a lot of wild animals in there. There are wild pig, coyote, all manner of hawks and owls, but the most common are the rabbits. Uh, Some of them get big, and you can see entire families out there on the edge uh, towards evening. And they tend to sortie out of the shelter of those woods to feed at the woods edges and to go over the top of the levee and go into gardens on the far side. Then they retreat back. So I was biking up there one evening, and this was at spring high water, so there was very little dry land between the levee and the river. And there were just a few pieces of dry land with brambles on it, and that's where the rapids would be, and that's where the people were. There were four of them. They came bursting out of the woods below me, the men brandishing golf clubs and chasing a rabbit who was looked like a pregnant mother. She was heavy, oh, the belly was heavy, and she lumbered up the levee in front of my bike and then down the other side, the men in hot pursuit. And I just put my bike between them as if I were surprised, and I was surprised. And I stopped, and I said, what's up? And the guy said, hunting rabbits. And his eyes were just wild with sort of joy. And, you know, as you are now, I was shocked. And I dawdled there to give that rabbit time to get away. But I could see on the levee top pieces of fur and other things. This wasn't the only rabbit they had been after. And they do it with a golf club. They did, which I thought was 
kind of wonderful. Uh, uh, <laughs> because, I mean, if you go back to the roots of human beings, that's the way we killed rabbits, right? <laughs> but here's, Poppy, here's, here's what occurred to me, and this is what I muse about. Why was I shocked? What was I... Was it the fact of a golf? Suppose they had been hunting him with bow and arrow. Uh-huh. Suppose they'd been hunting him with a gun. Would I have felt as shocked, offended? Uh, wow, we've taken a big step backward, you know, was the first step <laughs> thought in my mind, but but no. And so the fun part of this story and all the stories in here is not just what happened, but what does it sort of mean? What does it mean to have people hunting rabbits in this way, down in this scraggly piece of woods. Is there something nice about people being free to be able to do it? Well, I know that when you're on The Bachelor, you are often doing all sorts of much tamer food gathering. And... Honestly, Oliver, I'd never heard of dewberries until you introduced me to them. So would you tell us about the Batcher character who introduced you to dewberries? Yeah, he did it indirectly. Um, he was gathering mulberries. Probably another thing that's gone out. But this was a fellow who camped on the levee under a shelter, and he worked at a, lo- at a hardware store on Oak Street. So I knew who he was, and he was picking the mulberries, and he said he'd made wine out of them. Mm. So I took a few, and it popped into my mouth. I don't know whether you have tasted mulberries, but they're they're not succulent. They have a taste, but it's a little like eating a dried fruit. And I said, that's a little bitter, Sam. And, and then he said, well, you ought to try the dewberries. <laughs> and they come in later. The mulberry come out in February, and the dewberries will come out in, in March. And they look like a blackberry. They look like a raspberry. But they're 10 times as sweet. They're often larger. What color are they? Oh, they're a deep purple when they're ripe. They go from green to red, which is, in nature, red's kind of a warning sign. You just don't eat red things. And then it moves on to purple. So the trick with the dewberries is a little more fundamental. It's the picking them because they're thorn bushes. And inside those thorn bushes, they seem to have this symbiosis with poison ivy. They attract each other. Oh, dear. So poison ivy will be up in there. Also, little critters will be up in there. There'll be anole. There may be some little snakes. There may be, you know, you'll kick up some rabbits. You know, you're, you're out in the briar patch. But here's the thing about the badger that is important. If you were on the Batcher over the levee, you're away from the highway sounds. You have the river sounds coming, but they are ancient river sounds. They're boats going by, and they go back millennia. And although you're 100 yards away from people, I mean, they're riding by in the levee top. You could throw a stone and hit them. You are as mentally away and as aesthetically away as if you were in the North Pole, uh, as if you were in the jungle. There's this wonderful awareness, awayness. That has a profound effect on people. It's such an unknown place to us, and it's so rich. 
I've loved being there, and I like being on your show as well. Thanks. Well, this was a delicious tour, so thank you. My pleasure. That was Tulane Law Professor and author Oliver Hawk speaking to us in 2013. The name of his book is Down on the Batcher. about Oliver Hawk's bunny batcher tail put me in the mood to eat some rabbit. Now I know some of you might shy away from cooking Peter Cottontail, but rabbit has been an important part of Louisiana heritage cuisine since the French settlers arrived here over 300 years ago. Rabbit's high in protein, low in fat, and has half the calories of pork, so let's get cooking. Because rabbit can be a little tough, Stewing or braising is one of the best ways to prepare it. To cook up a delicious rabbit fricassee, season six hind legs with salt and pepper and brown them in a skillet with a little oil. In that same oil, saute some sliced onion until it's softened and translucent and then return the rabbit to the skillet and add enough chicken stock to just cover the legs. Add a couple of bay leaves and some thyme, and then bring it all to a boil, cover, and reduce the heat to a simmer, a low simmer. In about 40 minutes, the meat will be tender and falling off the bone. Remove the legs and let them cool until you can strip off the meat and discard the bones. Next, in a heavy Dutch oven, saute a mirepoix of chopped carrots, onions, and celery, and season with garlic, thyme, and sage. Sprinkle the sautéed veggies with some flour and stir it together for a couple of minutes before adding in the rabbit's cooking liquid and its meat. Season with salt and pepper and serve the fricassee over rice. Mmm, mmm, rabbit fricassee is real Louisiana Eats. Coming up next, Bill Heavey explains the bizarre lengths he took to eat only wild foraged food for a whole year. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Crystal Hot Sauce. Our next Cooking with Poppy live Zoom class, sponsored by Crystal, is scheduled for Saturday, March the 6th. It's an ultimate seafood extravaganza sure to liven up your Lenten table. 
From shrimp remoulade to my classic seafood gumbo and a crawfish etouffee that cooks quicker than it takes to make the rice. To learn more, visit poppytooker.com. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. is at home in the great outdoors where hunting and fishing have been his lifelong passion. He's the editor-at-large of Field and Stream magazine and widely regarded as the magazine's most popular voice. Several years ago, Bill wandered off the grid from his typical hunting and gathering in a personal challenge to see how far he and his appetite could go starting near his home in the Virginia suburbs of D.C. and reaching far beyond. His adventurous experiment resulted in his 2013 book, It's Only Slow Food Until You Try to Eat It. In a conversation we had shortly after its publication, I asked Bill what he'd discovered in the process. Well, I didn't have any idea that this would happen until I started foraging. But foraging is a very suspicious activity to other people. There's just something about it that really makes people look at you with suspicion. And I think it's because you're stepping outside the food system that we've all become so used to without ever giving any thought to it. I remember one day in a park here in Arlington, I was picking service berries, which grow in some public parks here. And as I was picking, this little boy wandered up to me. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm picking these berries. He started to pick one. I said, well, get a dark one. Those are, they're the sweetest. And he took a bite, and he got, it was electric. He just lit <laughs> up. And he went running back to his father. And his father was on the phone mm-hmm. and just kind of wandering through the park very slowly. And he goes, Dad, we got to do this every day. This is so great. And his father looks at me and looks at him and says, what's our rule about eating things that we pick up? You know, <laughs> and he's reining in this kid. He's not only not encouraging him, he's discouraging him, which is a way of getting in touch with, with nature, with the natural world. True. And I talked to the man, I told him what I was doing, and I offered him a berry, and he ate it, and he goes, uh, yeah, I guess it's not bad for a wild berry. And I thought, uh, you know, what a sad yes. <laughs> commentary that is, that uh, wild berries are sort of inferior to what we could buy in the supermarket. Now, you are a self-described suburban hunter-gatherer. So give us a little, for instance, about how you would create a salad from lawn weeds. This was a project I decided to do after I met another forager who explained to me that most of the weeds that Americans spend enormous amounts of money to eradicate from their lawns are actually edible plants. There's plantain, wood sorrel, violets, wild alliums, which are onions and garlic, things like chickweed, dandelion, Indian strawberry. The problem I had was that I was trying to make this salad late in the season. (laughs) These plants are most palatable 
when they first come out, but they're the hardest to identify. And this is a problem that goes all through foraging. If you look in foraging books, they identify the plants when they're in full flower because that's when they're easily distinguished. However, by that time, they're usually putting out bitter compounds into their leaves and stalks and flowers to protect themselves. So when they're most edible, they're least identifiable. When they're most identifiable, they're least edible. You discovered along the way that edible does not really necessarily equate tasty, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And and what were the nastiest things you've eaten? The nastiest things? uh, Well, the lawn salad was pretty nasty. Uh, (laughs) And in the lawn salad, I found out that garlic always gets the last word. I ate this stuff, and it was immensely fibrous, and I was chewing it until I thought I was developing new muscles in my jaw. But I could taste garlic for several days after that. But I tried to make flour from acorns. It's pretty hard to leach the bitter taste out of acorns. It can be done, but it's an enormous amount of work. Do you think that perhaps an unpleasant taste correlates to something that maybe is possibly poisonous? Oh, sure. In fact, for instance, there are two plants that look very much like each other. One is milkweed, which is very edible and pretty tasty, and the other is dogmane, which is poisonous. And there are many ways to identify the two, but the best way is to just take a tiny bite of the leaf, and that you know immediately, because if you've got dogbane, it's bitter, and you know not to eat it. And a rule of thumb in foraging is, is not to eat anything your first year without having it verified by somebody with a lot more experience. So even though you describe yourself as the suburban hunter-gatherer, in writing the book, you decided to branch out a little bit, and you did a lot of traveling, and you came down here and had what you described as an adventure among the Cajuns. I did. Through a series of phone calls, I found a wild craw fisherman named Mike Bienvenu. And I came down, and the first thing he did was take me to his houseboat, kind of a floating hunting camp that he had along the bayou. I was just bowled over by Louisiana hospitality for about three days. Within five minutes of meeting people, I had them offering me the keys to their house if I needed a place to stay, and people were feeding me left and right. And after a few days, Mike said, you need to go duck hunting with Jody Mesh. By that time, I was, I just, you know, I had surrendered and was <laughs> just went where I was told because I was, it was useless to protest. And uh, Jody Mesh took me duck hunting from his hunting camp up the Whiskey River Pilot Channel. We took off one morning in the dark and went on four-wheelers and then got in a canoe and then rode until I thought he was about to crash the canoe into a huge cypress stump when he told me to duck my head, and I did, and the canoe slid under the cypress stump, and there was a hole in the bottom of it, and we climbed up into it. We were inside the tree, and that was his duck blind. Well, I'm a bit of an outdoors woman myself, and so I have a fair amount of swamp adventures. I've I've been on some alligator hunts. I've done some things like that, but I have to admit... I have never gone frogging. You had a great frogging adventure in Louisiana. I did. 
I got my introduction to frogging in the drive-through line at a McDonald's. <laughs> we had to we had to feed Jody's son before we went frogging because his mother wasn't home and we were going to be out late. So Jody was telling me, he was saying, now, Bill, when you get out there this evening, you're not petting that frog. You're not slapping that frog. you got to grab that frog. And his hand shoots out and just crushes the styrofoam cup <laughs> that kind of explodes inside the cab. There's this loud noise. I never would have believed a styrofoam cup could be so loud. And little bits of styrofoam floating down like I'm in a snow globe. <laughs> the frogs in the Louisiana swamps are pretty wily critters in some ways because they can fool you, right? That is true. I grabbed one, and the thing went absolutely limp in my hand, and it was just the most unsettling feeling. And I said, oh, Jody, there's something wrong with this frog. It's sick. And just then, the frog jumped out of my hands and was on the floor of the boat trying to jump out, and I fell on the thing with <laughs> both hands and pinned it. Jody just laughed, and he said, Bill, that's one of Mr. Frog's best tricks. You know, he'll play dead till you loosen your grasp, and then he'll jump on you. Oh, boy. Lots of great stories from your wild eating adventures. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. Thank you. That was Bill Heavey, author of It's Only Slow Food Until You Try to Eat It. We spoke in 2013. Hansel Harlan. I'm the president and co-founder of Marsh Dog. If you hunt, fish, or forage in Louisiana, you're most likely familiar with an invasive species that, despite being adored for their cuddly appearance, threaten our local land and water. I'm talking about the orange-toothed nutria. Imported to Louisiana in the early 1900s for their fur, the fast-breeding nutria took to our marshes like a fish to water, accelerating coastal erosion in the process. We've been battling this interloper in a variety of ways ever since, with very little success. Recognizing something had to be done, one enterprising entrepreneur in Baton Rouge found a way to combat nutria while serving man's best friend. Hansel Harlan is president and co-founder of Marsh Dog Treats, which uses wild nutria as the number one ingredient in its products. When we spoke in 2017, Hansel explained to us how he came up with this one-of-a-kind business idea. During college, I was in graduate school in Argentina. It was down there that I first learned that nutria in Louisiana actually came from Argentina. Growing up, I always knew about nutria, but I thought that they were indigenous to uh, Louisiana. How did they get here? They were brought in sort of like, you know, how people will like farm chinchilla for the fur? Yes. or So this was sort of like that. They imported them in the early 1900s to raise in captivity for their fur. 
and they ended up getting loose in Louisiana and going into the marshes. Well, they sure do know how to multiply, don't they? Absolutely. Well, see, when they were in Argentina, they don't have near the problem with nutria that we have here because their wetlands there aren't coastal wetlands. They're wetlands in the interior, and their size is controlled by the seasons. During the dry seasons, the wetlands can shrink considerably. So the population of nutria, therefore, are kept in check by natural elements. Whereas in Louisiana, they've really just stumbled into nirvana. It's a perfect climate all year round, wetlands all year round, and they multiply at just an astronomical rate. And so the real problem with nutria is that they're just voracious herbivores. They do three things, basically. They sleep, have baby nutria, and eat. But they don't only eat just leaves off of plants. They're pretty selective in what they like. So they actually like to pull up the marsh grasses and eat the tender roots. They're very picky about what they like. But that ends up basically denuding large areas of the wetlands. So what had happened from the time that they got in Louisiana in the early 1900s all the way through the late 70s, early 80s, were that the population was kept in check by people that hunted them and harvested them for their furs. There were millions of nutria that were taken every year by trappers and skinned, and the skins were cured and treated, and they were sold all over the United States and all over the world for fashion. But once that stopped, there were no more predators for, to keep the nutria population in check. So commensurately, their numbers just exploded. So the biologists, when they were looking at all the land that we were losing, identified nutria as one of the culprits and says, look, oh my gosh, the fur industry is gone. These nutria are unchecked. We've got to figure out a way to solve this problem. So they toyed with a number of different solutions. They talked about poisoning them for a while on some of this large scale. They tried to develop an industry where they were going to capture them, bring them in, clean them, and try to sell them for human consumption. Oh, yes. Even Paul Prudhomme got involved in that effort, I recall. That's exactly (laughs) right. Nutria sauce piquant. The state was investing millions of dollars in the uh, project at the time. And then in 1998, they actually put a bounty out on the Nutria. And that was the final solution when they realized that people weren't going to eat them. They said, you know what, we give up. We're just going to pay people to go kill them. So how's that going? (laughs) Well, the the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries does a great job with the bounty uh, program, the nutrient control program. The problem is that it costs an arm and a leg. What they are doing basically every year is they go through and they figure out how many nutria they have to cull. And right now, I think the numbers last time I checked were about 350 to 400,000, depending on the year. They can go in and see the population and how fast it's growing, and they know how many they have to kill in order to basically mow the grass. They're not defeating the problem. They're just keeping it in check. And so when you multiply that times the bounty, the costs that are paid out of the bounty program alone are close to $2 million dollars. Each year. And what are they doing with all those dead nutria? They just leave them. Oh. They just leave them. They kill them, and they, uh, they cut the tail off, and they bring it back in, and they get collected. Wow. And how did you make this connection between dog treats and nutria? 
Well, we were looking at the numbers involved with the bounty program, and we were thinking, oh, my gosh, if there was only some sort of way where we could harness the forces of capitalism in order to help solve an environmental problem, that being coastal erosion. So we said, well, if we could go down and we could contract with the guys who were already going out there and harvesting the nutria and just chopping off the tail, then maybe we could get them to bring in the body and we could have it processed and turn it into some sort of either dog food or dog treat. Because what was happening, actually, the end of the, the, end of the deal is that I had a dog at the time who was having food allergies. Um, because there was a problem with a lot of dog food manufacturers, and I don't want to say a problem, but they use grains in dog food manufacturing, and grains are not a part of a dog's natural diet. And so dogs will end up having allergic reactions to corn, soy, or wheat, which is a large filler in a lot of dog foods. When we finally isolated that that was the problem with my dog, I started feeding it home brewed sort of goulash that I was making from turkey meat. Mm. And so at the same time, I'm reading these various stories every month or two about the Nutria, and I saw in connection with the state's efforts to market it as for human consumption, they were talking about how similar it was to turkey meat. And I'm like, well, wait a second. (laughs) If it's like turkey meat, and my turkey meat is so good for my dog, why can't I use Nutria meat? So what year was it when you started concocting dog treats, and how did you come up with the recipe? I guess it's about five years ago right now, and um, what had happened is I started talking to my sister, Venny, who is a huge dog person. She's also a graphic designer. I said, wouldn't this be fun if we could get a company together and we could go down and contract with these guys and get Nutria meat and make these dog treats and sell them? And so we talked about it for about four or five months. And as, uh, again, I was reading the paper one day, and they have an organization, a federal state cooperative entity called the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program. And it's a federal state group that was formed in order to combat particular problems that plague that ecosystem. And so they had a mini-grant program where every year they would have a contest And if you had a really good idea that would help that estuary in some particular way, you would submit an application. And if they liked it, they would give you a grant. So my sister and I said, oh, let's let's submit an application and see what they think. Got together and created a business plan and an application and sent it in, and we won. (laughs) That must have been a big turning point. Well, it's sort of like the dog that's running after the bus, right? <laughs> when you, and you catch it, and we're like, oh, my gosh, what do we do now? Because they were said, here you go. Here's your money. When are you going to get started? We're like, oh, where do we even start? So that just started us off on a long journey of going down, getting to know the the problem, getting to know the trappers, getting to know the fur industry, making contacts figuring out how this was actually going to be done. So the two of you all developed the recipe? Uh, Yes, we did. I sort of took the lead on that with my sister adding ideas and using all of our dogs as test rabbits, so (laughs) to speak. I bet they didn't mind. (laughs) Not at all. So uh, over the course of about 
six to nine months, we came up with a working recipe that we had some concepts that we wanted to implement. We wanted to do all of our ingredients from Louisiana. We wanted it as natural as possible. We wanted to keep it preservative-free at the time. We didn't realize that we were really just putting huge obstacles in front of us with every one of these decisions that we made. But we were able to make it work, so we came out with some biscuits at first, and then we segued into some jerky as well. Now, where are these treats made? First, they were made at the kitchen at my home, <laughs> but we quickly outgrew that, and we, have, we created a facility here in Baton Rouge, but we've outstripped our capacity there. So we're presently contracting with some manufacturers to try to uh, pick up our production for us. And where can people find Marsh Dog Treats? We are in most independent pet stores in Louisiana. We're in four or five other states right now, and we have Internet sales through most all of the states in the country as well as internationally. Well, congratulations. There's nothing like a homegrown treat. Hansel, do you have any idea how many nutria you're going through now a year to create Marsh Dog Treats? That is uh, really hard to say exactly. It's in the hundreds of thousands of pounds. I'll tell you, some people have come to us and uh, will sort of question the efficacy of our business project. And they say, well, gosh, what are you guys going to do if you run out of Nutria? And we said, well, you know what? That's the whole point. It should be our motto. Put us out of business, right? Because if we run out of Nutria, then the problem is solved. Well, Hansel, you have such a wonderful homegrown success story, and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to share it with all my Louisiana Eats listeners. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Hansel Harlan of Marsh Dog Treats, speaking with us in 2017. Part of the alligator makes for the best eating? Don't go anywhere. We'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. 
To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Which part of the alligator makes for the best eating? The tail. Inside each alligator tail are two tenderloins, considered to be the filet mignon of the gator. That and the jaw meat are best in baked dishes, cutlets, and for frying, my favorite way to eat alligator. There's also some good meat in the body and legs, but that meat tends to be tougher and requires marinating and long cooking to make it tender. When buying alligator, make sure to buy white meat. The red isn't as palatable. And here's some good news for Catholics. In 2013, New Orleans Archbishop Gregory Amond made it official. The alligator may be eaten on Fridays during Lent. He said, the alligator is a magnificent creature that's important to the state of Louisiana and is considered seafood. I'll give that a big amen. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Wild Alligator makes for some good Louisiana Eats. Joey Fonseca of Outlaw Catfish is truly a wild man of the swamps. In the early days of the Crescent City Farmer's Market, Joey and his wife Jeannie reintroduced New Orleans to the taste of wild catfish, a buttery, delicious flavor very different from farm-raised. With his handlebar mustache and long mane of white hair, Joey looks as wild as the food he brings to market. Every September, Joey can be found trapping alligators in the swamps and bayous of Louisiana. Here's Joey from back in 2011 sharing the fine points of alligator hunting in Louisiana. Joey, welcome to Louisiana Eats. So glad to be here. So September is alligator season, and I am really thrilled that you could take the time to come and visit with us. Now, what I'd like you to do is walk us through the alligator hunting process. Well, suppose we paddle through it instead. That's a deal. You got it. Okay. The state wants us to, of course, be honest, which that throws a kink in my plans, but nonetheless, <laughs> honest, and they offer us two different ways to catch alligators, basically. They prefer you use the hook and bait method being less loss or possibilities of loss. They don't want to lose these big prime leather bearers. <laughs> so what's the bait? Well, feet, hands. Stop you know. it. <laughs> of course we're talking about chicken. <laughs> really stinky chicken, right? Preferably two and a half days old. 
Once we're satisfied with the placement of the bait, we'll exit the scene, drift off into another area, set another one. We're going to do this 35 or 40 times, depending upon how many tags we're going to fill and how fast we want to fill them. So the baits are all set. And how long do you leave them out before oh, you go man, check them? Oh, man, I can't them? wait. I want to go run them now. <laughs> <laughs> the baits are all set. You're supposed to once every 24 hours. Okay. Mandatory. Come hella hurricane. So how can you tell when the alligator's on the line? You ask him. <laughs> Mostly, you have a straight, taunt line. Really good indication. We're going to play. And then what do you do? We dance. <laughs> For the most part, a twenty-two Magnum pistol, preferred method of execution. You have other things you do, too, Yes, though, I've huh? done it in several different varieties. It's Spice of life and all that. We take salt and pepper in the boat. First, I talked to him. Couldn't get along without it. If he has to meet his maker, let's be polite about it. Speak to him with a rifle. Speak to him with a hatchet. Gets a lot more fun that way. But it's the blunt end of the hatchet that you use, Correct. right? You give him a little headache. To say the least. <laughs> And that would be really good because then there's no hole in the hide. True. Okay, so you get that alligator and you dispatch him by some method or another. And then you got to haul him in the boat with you? We flipped him in the boat. We tagged him because immediately upon taking, you tagged the animal. Now we can rock and roll to the next line. And then you get your truck full of big old dead alligators eventually. Bloody mess. They move from the boat. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so you move them from the boat, from the pirogue to the back of the truck, and then what happens? Depending upon what's happening, we uh, take them straight to the uh, cooler, cool them down for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours. So you want rigor mortis to set in for you, Depending on what's them? going on, I want, to, I want to cool the hell out of them. Uh, like I am right now with the uh, the cooler broken, I've already had to uh, lay them down in a pirogue and uh, cover them with ice and water, which it also does a really good cooling effect. Not long after, the animal stiffens up a little bit, some rigor mortis, I'm sure, and it makes it easier to skin. Skinning, fleshing, salting, back in the cooler and or freezer. And then once you've tagged out, go to Lafayette. I used to go to Lafayette every year. I'll change location on me now. I'll have to go to Bro Bridge or something. What is your favorite cut of the alligator? Which piece of the gator do you like the best? My favorite cut is when the hatchet hits and it cuts his skull open. Stop it. And he's mine. That is not the question. Well, now, I mean, we're I talking just about thinking about cuts. <laughs> we're talking about cuts of meat. What, uh, <laughs> what's normally considered the filet mignon is the uh, tenderloin. I mean, certain I'm... muscles within the tail. Okay, so it's it's certain muscles in the tail. Correct. It's the filet mignon of the alligator. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out from the hunting to come and talk with us on Louisiana Eats. Dawn, I wish I could stay. That was Joey Fonseca of Outlaw Catfish. 
my favorite alligator hunter. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Join us for our next live Zoom cooking class, Saturday, March the 6th. We'll be cooking up a seafood extravaganza, including rumelade, gumbo, and etouffee. To join the fun, visit poppytooker.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.